Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Uncharted Isle by Clark Ashton Smith I do not know how long I had been drifting in the boat. There are several days and nights that I remember only as alternate blanks of greyness and darkness, and after these there came a phantasmagoric eternity of delirium, and an indeterminate lapse into pitch-black oblivion. The sea-water I had swallowed must have revived me, for when I came to myself I was lying at the bottom of the boat with my head lifted a little in the stern, and six inches of brine lapping at my lips. I was gasping and strangling with the mouthfuls I had taken. The boat was tossing roughly, with more water coming over the sides at each toss, and I could hear the sound of breakers not far away. I tried to sit up, and succeeded, after a prodigious effort. My thoughts and sensations were curiously confused, and I found it difficult to orient myself in any manner. The physical sensation of extreme thirst was dominant over all else. My mouth was lined with running, throbbing fire, and I felt light-headed, and the rest of my body was strangely limp and hollow. It was hard to remember just what had happened, and for a moment I was not even puzzled by the fact that I was alone in the boat. But, even to my dazed, uncertain senses, the roar of those breakers had conveyed a distinct warning of peril, and, sitting up, I reached for the oars. The oars were gone, but in my enfeebled state it was not likely that I could have made much use of them anyway. I looked around and saw that the boat was drifting rapidly in the wash of a shoreward current, between two low-lying darkish reefs, half hidden by flying veils of foam. A steep and barren cliff loomed before me, but, as the boat neared it, the cliff seemed to divide miraculously, revealing a narrow chasm through which I floated into the mirror-like waters of a still lagoon. The passage from the rough sea without, to a realm of sheltered silence and seclusion, was no less abrupt than the transition of events and scenery which often occurs in a dream. The lagoon was long and narrow, and ran sinuously away between level shores that were fringed with an ultra-tropical vegetation. There were many fern-palms, of a type I had never seen, and many stiff, gigantic cycads, and wide-leaved grasses taller than young trees. I wondered a little about them even then, though, as the boat drifted slowly toward the nearest beach, I was mainly preoccupied with the clarifying and assorting of my recollections. These gave me more trouble than one would think. I must have been a trifle light-headed still, and the seawater I had drunk couldn't have been very good for me either, even though it had helped to revive me. I remembered, of course, that I was Mark Irwin, first mate of the freighter Auckland, plying between Kiao and Wellington, and I recalled only too well the night when Captain Melville had wrenched me bodily from my bunk, from the dreamless undersea of a dog-tired slumber, shouting that the ship was on fire. I recalled the roaring hell of flame and smoke, through which we had fought our way to the deck, to find that the vessel was already past retrieving, since the fire had reached the oil that formed part of her cargo, and then the swift launching of boats in the lurid glare of the conflagration. Half the crew had been caught in the blazing forecastle, and those of us who escaped were compelled to put off without water or provisions. We had rowed for days in a dead calm, without sighting any vessel, 
and were suffering the tortures of the damned, when a storm had arisen. In this storm, two of the boats were lost, and the third, which was manned by Captain Melville, the second mate, the boatswain, and myself, had survived. But some time during the storm, or during the days and nights of delirium that followed, my companions must have gone overboard. This much I recalled, but all of it was somehow unreal and remote, and seemed to pertain only to another person than the one who was floating shoreward on the waters of a still lagoon. I felt very dreamy and detached, and even my thirst didn't trouble me half as much now as it had on awakening. The boat touched a beach of fine, pearly sand, before I began to wonder where I was and to speculate concerning the shores I had reached. I knew that we had been hundreds of miles southwest of Easter Island, on the night of the fire, in a part of the Pacific where there is no other land, and certainly this couldn't be Easter Island. What, then, could it be? I realized, with a sort of shock, that I must have found something not on any charted course or geological map. Of course, it was an isle of some kind, but I could form no idea of its possible extent, and I had no way of deciding offhand whether it was peopled or unpeopled. Except for the lush vegetation, and a few queer-looking birds and butterflies, and some equally queer-looking fish in the lagoon, there was no visible life anywhere. I got out of the boat, feeling very weak and wobbly in the hot white sunshine that poured down upon everything like a motionless universal cataract. My first thought was to find fresh water, and I plunged at random among the mighty fern-trees, parting their enormous leaves with extreme effort, and sometimes reeling against their boles to save myself from falling. Twenty or thirty paces, however, and then I came to a tiny rill that sprang in shattered crystal from a low ledge, to collect in a placid pool where ten-inch mosses and broad, anemone-like blossoms mirrored themselves. The water was cool and sweet. I drank profoundly, and felt the benison of its freshness permeate all my parched tissues. Now I began to look around for some sort of edible fruit. Close to the stream, I found a shrub that was trailing its burden of salmon-yellow droops on the giant mosses. I couldn't identify the fruit, but its aspect was delicious and I decided to take a chance. It was full of a sugary pulp, and strength returned to me even as I ate. My brain cleared, and I recovered many, if not all, of the faculties that had been in a state of partial abeyance. I went back to the boat, and bailed out all the sea-water, then I tried to drag the boat as far up on the sand as I could, in case I might need it again at any future time. My strength was inadequate to the task, and still fearing that the tide might carry it away, I cut some of the high grasses with my clasp-knife, and wove them into a long rope, with which I moored the boat to the nearest palm-tree. Now, for the first time, I surveyed my situation with an analytic eye, and became aware of much that I had hitherto failed to observe or realize. A medley of queer impressions thronged upon me, some of which could not have arrived through the avenues of the known senses. To begin with, I saw more clearly the abnormal oddity of the plant-forms about me. They were not the palm-ferns, grasses and shrubs that are native to South Sea Islands. Their leaves, their stems, their frondage, were mainly of uncouth, archaic types, such as might have existed in former eons, on the sea-lost littorals of Mu. They differed from anything I had seen in Australia or New Guinea, those asylums of a primeval flora, and gazing upon them, 
I was overwhelmed with intimations of a dark and prehistoric antiquity, and the silence around me seemed to become the silence of dead ages, and of things that have gone down beneath oblivion's tide. From that moment, I felt that there was something wrong about the island, but somehow I couldn't tell just what it was, or seize definitely upon everything that contributed to this impression. Aside from the bizarre-looking vegetation, I noticed that there was a queerness about the very sun. It was too high in the heavens for any latitude to which I could conceivably have drifted, and it was too large anyway, and the sky was unnaturally bright, with a dazzling incandescence. There was a spell of perpetual quietude upon the air, and never the slightest rippling of leaves or water, and the whole landscape hung before me, like a monstrous vision of unbelievable realms, apart from time and space. According to all the maps, that island couldn't exist anyhow. More and more decisively, I knew that there was something wrong. I felt an eerie confusion, a weird bewilderment, like one who has been cast away on the shores of an alien planet, and it seemed to me that I was separated from my former life, and from everything I had ever known, by an interval of distance more irremeable than all the blue leagues of sea and sky, that, like the island itself, I was lost to all possible reorientation. For a few instants, this feeling became a nervous panic, a paralyzing horror. In an effort to overcome my agitation, I set off along the shore of the lagoon, pacing with feverish rapidity. It occurred to me that I might as well explore the island, and perhaps, after all, I might find some clue to the mystery, might stumble on something of explanation or reassurance. After several serpent-like turns of the winding water, I reached the end of the lagoon. Here the country began to slope upward, toward a high ridge, heavily wooded with the same vegetation I had already met, to which a long-leaved araucaria was now added. This ridge was apparently the crest of the island, and, after a half-hour of groping among the ferns, the stiff archaic shrubs and araucarias, I managed to surmount it. Here, through a rift in the foliage, I looked down upon a scene no less incredible than unexpected. The further shore of the island was visible below me, and all along the curving beach of a landlocked harbour were the stone roofs and towers of a town. Even at that distance, I could see that the architecture was of an unfamiliar type, and I was not sure at first glance whether the buildings were ancient ruins or the homes of a living people. Then, beyond the roofs, I saw that several strange-looking vessels were moored at a sort of mole, flaunting their orange sails in the sunlight. My excitement was indescribable. At most, if the island were peopled at all, I had thought to find a few savage huts, and here below me were edifices that betokened a considerable degree of civilization. What they were, or who had builded them, were problems beyond surmise. But, as I hastened down the slope toward the harbour, a very human eagerness was mingled with the dumbfoundment and stupefaction I had been experiencing. At least there were people on the island, and, at the realization of this, the horror that had been a part of my bewilderment was dissipated for the nonce. When I drew nearer to the houses, I saw that they were indeed strange. But the strangeness was not wholly inherent in their architectural forms, nor was I able to trace its every source, or define it in any way, by word or image. The houses were built of a stone whose precise colour I cannot recall, 
since it was neither brown nor red nor grey, but a hue that seemed to combine, yet differ from, all these, and I remember only that the general type of construction was low and square, with square towers. The strangeness lay in more than this, in the sense of a remote and stupefying antiquity that emanated from them like an odour. I knew at once that they were old as the uncouth primordial trees and grasses, and, like these, were parcel of a long-forgotten world. Then I saw the people, those people before whom not only my ethnic knowledge, but my very reason, were to own themselves baffled. There were scores of them in sight among the buildings, and all of them appeared to be intensely preoccupied with something or other. At first, I couldn't make out what they were doing, or trying to do, but plainly they were much in earnest about it. Some were looking at the sea or the sun, and then at long scrolls of a paper-like material which they held in their hands, and many were grouped on a stone platform around a large, intricate metal apparatus resembling an armillary. All of these people were dressed in tunic-like garments of unusual amber and azure, and Tyrian shades, cut in a fashion that was unfamiliar to history, and when I came close, I saw that their faces were broad and flat, with a vague foreomening of the Mongolian in their oblique eyes. But, in an unspecifiable way, the character of their features was not that of any race that has seen the sun for a million years, and the low, liquid, many-voweled words which they spoke to each other were not denotive of any recorded language. None of them appeared to notice me, and I went up to a group of three who were studying one of the long scrolls I have mentioned, and addressed them. For all answer, they bent closer above the scroll, and even when I plucked one of them by the sleeve, it was evident that he did not observe me. Much amazed, I peered into their faces, and was struck by the mingling of supreme perplexity and monomaniacal intentness which their expression displayed. There was much of the madman, and more of the scientist, absorbed in some irresoluble problem. Their eyes were fixed and fiery, their lips moved and mumbled in a fever of perpetual disquiet, and, following their gaze, I saw that the thing they were studying was a sort of chart or map, whose yellowing paper and faded inks were manifestly of past ages. The continents and seas and isles on this map were not those of the world I knew, and their names were written in heteroclitic runes of a lost alphabet. There was one immense continent in particular, with a tiny isle close to its southern shore, and ever and anon one of the beings who poured above the map would touch this isle with his fingertip, and then would stare toward the empty horizon, as if he were seeking to recover a vanished shoreline. I received a distinct impression that these people were as irretrievably lost as myself, that they too were disturbed and baffled by a situation not to be solved or redeemed. I went on toward the stone platform, which stood in a broad open space among the foremost houses. It was perhaps ten feet high, and access to it was given by a flight of winding steps. I mounted the steps, and tried to accost the people there, crowding about the armillary-like instrument. But they too were utterly oblivious of me, and intent upon the observations they were making. Some of them were turning the great celestial sphere, some were consulting various geographical and celestial maps, and from my nautical knowledge, I could see that certain of their companions were taking the height of the sun with a kind of astrolabe. All of them wore the same look of perplexity and savant-like preoccupation which I had observed in the others. 
Seeing that my efforts to attract their attention were fruitless, I left the platform and wandered along the streets toward the harbour. The strangeness and inexplicability of it all were too much for me. More and more I felt that I was being alienated from the realms of all rational experience or conjecture, that I had fallen into some unearthly limbo of confoundment and unreason, into the cul-de-sac of an ultra-terrestrial dimension. These beings were so palpably astray and bewildered, it was so obvious that they knew as well as I that there was something wrong with the geography, and perhaps with the chronology of their island. I spent the rest of the day roaming around, but nowhere could I find anyone who was able to perceive my presence, and nowhere was there anything to reassure me or resolve my ever-growing confusion of mind and spirit. Everywhere there were men and also women, and though comparatively few of them were grey and wrinkled, they all conveyed to my apprehension a feeling of immemorial eld, of years and cycles beyond all record or computation. And all were troubled, all were feverishly intent, and were perusing maps, or reading ancient pills and volumes, or staring at the sea and sky, or studying the brazen tablets of astronomical parapams along the streets, as if by so doing they could somehow find the flaw in their reckonings. There were men and women of mature years, and some with the fresh, unlined visages of youth, but in all the place I saw but one child, and the face of the child was no less perplexed and troubled than those of its elders. If anyone ate or drank or carried on the normal occupations of life, it was not done within my scope of vision, and I conceived the idea that they had lived in this manner, obsessed with the same problem, through a period of time which would have been practically eternal in any other world than theirs. I came to a large building, whose open door was dark with the shadows of the interior. Peering in, I found that it was a temple, for across the deserted twilight, heavy with the stale fumes of burnt-out incense, the slant eyes of a baleful and monstrous image glared upon me. The thing was seemingly of stone or wood, with gorilla-like arms and the malignant features of a subhuman race. From what little I could see in the gloom, it was not pleasant to look upon, and I left the temple and continued my perambulations. Now I came to the waterfront, where the vessels with orange sails were moored at a stone mole. There were five or six of them in all. They were small galleys, with single banks of oars and figureheads of metal that were graven with the likeness of primordial gods. They were indescribably worn by the waves of untold years. Their sails were rotting rags, and no less than all else on the island, they bore the imprint of a dread antiquity. It was easy to believe that their grotesquely carven prows had touched the eon-sunken wharves of Lemuria. I returned to the town, and once again I sought to make my presence known to the inhabitants, but all in vain, and after a while, as I trudged from street to street, the sun went down behind the island, and the stars came swiftly out in a heaven of purpureal velvet. The stars were large and lustrous, and were innumerably thick. With the eye of a practised mariner, I studied them eagerly, but I could not trace the wanted constellations, though here and there I thought that I perceived a distortion or elongation of some familiar grouping. All was hopelessly askew, and disorder crept into my very brain, as I tried once more to orient myself, and noticed that the inhabitants of the town were still busied with a similar endeavour. 
I have no way of computing the length of my sojourn on the island. Time didn't seem to have any proper meaning there, and, even if it had, my mental state was not one to admit of precise reckoning. It was all so impossible and unreal, so much like an absurd and troublesome hallucination, and half the time I thought that it was merely a continuation of my delirium, that probably I was still drifting in the boat. After all, this was the most reasonable supposition, and I don't wonder that those who have heard my story refuse to entertain any other. I'd agree with them, if it weren't for one or two quite material details. The manner in which I lived is pretty vague to me also. I remember sleeping under the stars, outside the town. I remember eating and drinking, and watching those people day after day, as they pursued their hopeless calculations. Sometimes I went into the houses and helped myself to food, and once or twice, if I remember rightly, I slept on a couch in one of them, without being disputed or heeded by the owners. There was nothing that could break the spell of their obsession or force them to notice me, and I soon gave up the attempt. And it seemed to me, as time went on, that I myself was no less unreal, no less doubtful and insubstantial than their disregard would appear to indicate. In the midst of my bewilderment, however, I found myself wondering if it would be possible to get away from the island. I remembered my boat, and remembered also that I had no oars, and forthwith I made tentative preparations for departure. In broad daylight, before the eyes of the townspeople, I took two oars from one of the galleys in the harbour, and carried them across the ridge to where my boat was hidden. The oars were very heavy, their blades were broad as fans, and their handles were fretted with hieroglyphs of silver. Also, I appropriated from one of the houses two earthen jars, painted with barbaric figures, and bore them away to the lagoon, intending to fill them with fresh water when I left. And also, I collected a supply of food. But somehow the brain-muddling mystery of it all had paralysed my initiative, and even when everything was ready, I delayed my departure. I felt, too, that the inhabitants must have tried innumerable times to get away in their galleys, and had always failed, and so I lingered on, like a man in the grip of some ridiculous nightmare. One evening, when those distorted stars had all come out, I became aware that unusual things were going on. The people were no longer standing about in groups, with their customary pourings and discussions, but were all hastening toward the temple-like edifice. I followed them, and peered in at the door. The place was lit with flaring torches that flung demoniac shadows on the crowd, and on the idol before whom they were bowing. Perfumes were burnt, and chants were sung in the myriad-vowed language with which my ear had become familiarized. They were invoking that frightful image with gorilla-like arms and half-human, half-animal face, and it was not hard for me to surmise the purpose of the invocation. Then the voices died to a sorrowful whisper, the smoke of the censers thinned, and the little child I had once seen was thrust forward in a vacant space between the congregation and the idol. I had thought, of course, that the god was of wood or stone, but now, in a flash of terror and consternation, I wondered if I had been mistaken, for the oblique eyes opened more widely, and glowered upon the child, and the long arms, ending in knife-taloned fingers, lifted slowly and reached forward, and arrow-sharp fangs were displayed in the bestial grin of the leaning face. 
The child was still as a bird beneath the hypnotic eyes of a serpent, and there was no movement, and no longer even a whisper, from the waiting throng. I cannot recall what happened then. Whenever I try to recall it, there is a cloud of horror and darkness in my brain. I must have left the temple and fled across the island by starlight, but of this too I remember nothing. My first recollection is of rowing seaward through the narrow chasm by which I had entered the lagoon, and of trying to steer a course by the ride and twisted constellations. After that, there were days and days on a bland, unrippled sea, beneath a heaven of dazzling incandescence, and more nights below the crazy stars, till the days and nights became an eternity of tortured weariness, and my food and water were all consumed, and hunger and thirst and a feverish calenture with tossing, seething hallucinations were all that I knew. One night I came to myself for a little while, and lay staring up at the sky, and once more the stars were those of the rightful heavens, and I gave thanks to God for my sight of the Southern Cross, ere I slid back into coma and delirium. And when I recovered consciousness again, I was lying in a ship's cabin, and the ship's doctor was bending over me. They were all very kind to me on that ship, but when I tried to tell them my tale, they smiled pityingly, and after a few attempts, I learned to keep my silence. They were very curious about the two oars with silver-fretted handles, and the painted jars which they found with me in the boat, but they were all too frank in refusing to accept my explanation. No such island and no such people could possibly exist, they said. It was contrary to all the maps that had ever been made, and gave the direct lie to all the ethnologists and geographers. Often I wonder about it myself, for there are so many things I can't explain. Is there a part of the Pacific that extends beyond time and space, an oceanic limbo into which, by some unknowable cataclysm, that island passed in a bygone period, even as Lemuria sank beneath the wave? And if so, by what abrogation of dimensional laws was I enabled to reach the island and depart from it? These things are beyond speculation, but often in my dream I see again the incognizably distorted stars, and share the confusion and bafflement of a lost people as they pour above their useless charts, and take the altitude of a deviated sun.